series called Romans, uh, Revealing the Righteousness of God. And uh, if you were here last week, we gave an opening to it. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, um, well, hey, you can go back and catch the opening. Uh, but today we're going to be picking up in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be picking up in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 15 here in a few moments. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you on uh, either campus, uh, hey, that's okay. You can go to Connection Point at the end of our service, and we would love to hook you up with a Bible, one that you can have for your own, a uh, nice Bible that you can read every day. Uh, you can join with us in our Joshua reading plan. Also, just as we dive into uh, Romans, you can have that as well to, to, to highlight or mark up, to put notes in. And so we would love to bless you with that today. Um, real quickly, uh, if you're, maybe you're here like, okay, I just don't know where Romans is. Uh, well, Romans is in the New Testament and our Bible is composed of, of an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament is... 39 books that give you the account of a nation called Israel. Uh, this nation was God's promised people. Uh, he gave them uh, not only the law, which you find in the first five books, but later he would uh, show you how they walk through different areas, the kings and the judges. And then also he would uh, tell you how he would give them prophets to remind them to come back to his, his purposes and his promises. But the Old Testament, all those books tell you about this nation, but also about the Messiah that would come from the nation. And this Messiah, his name, would become uh, the wonderful counselor. He would be the prince of peace. He would be the mighty God. Uh, we know from the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, that they would give him the name Jesus, uh, God's salvation. And so Jesus uh, is what the New Testament talks about. This man that came from the nation of Israel to save the nations. Anyone who would believe in their heart, confess with their mouth, could have a relationship with the God of the Bible because of Jesus Christ. And so our New Testament simply gives us the gospels. That's uh, the good news. And then after that, it tells you about the early church in a book called Acts, uh, 28 chapters of what was happening in the early church. And then right after Acts, you get to this book called Romans. So it's the sixth book of the New Testament. Romans is not the first um, letter that Paul wrote, uh, but it is categorized in the first place. But it's a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Rome. Oftentimes you'll hear people say it was an epistle. Epistle is the same idea or word for a letter. So Paul writes to Rome. Uh, last week we covered all that. And so today we're going to dive in, and here's what we're talking about, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. What does it look like to have great friends? I don't know about you, but there's probably some of you in here that you'd go, I have really great friends. Um, and, and some of the friends that you have that you would consider great friends are not even friends that you see all that often. But there are friends in your life that you're like, I can be myself. Like if they were over the house, you don't feel the, the necessity to cook and to clean and to, and to entertain. Like it's the kind of friend that you just kind of kick back on the couch. Uh, you're in your pajamas. Your shoes are off on the floor. Um, your dog can jump up on their lap and it's no big deal. But there are other people that we love in our lives and they're friends, but we just don't have that same depth of friendship. Well, today we want to talk about what a depth of friendship looks like and what Paul meant when even he wrote to the, to the church of Rome, people he had never met before. What's he mean by friendship? And so we're going to dive into that in a few moments. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I, I know, I don't have friends either. And, and here's what I would just encourage you, as one unknown author would say, is if you don't have a good friend, get you a wet dog. There's nothing better in the world than a wet dog, right? <laughs> and so the reality is, is that a lot of us in here, that we have acquaintances and we have friends, there are few that stick closer than a brother. And the question is, is what is required for a friend to stick closer than a brother? Let's dive in and let's see what Paul writes to the church of Rome. 
in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, it says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That was Paul's heart. Um, he would say in verses 16 and 17 that he's not ashamed of the gospel in which he's going to preach, which we're going to talk about next week, what it looks like to uh, be in that context. But really what he's saying is this. He goes, I long to be with you. Now, the reason he writes this after his brief greeting that we established last week is because there was a message circulating among the Roman church that Paul was a little fearful of Rome. Obviously, Rome was the epicenter of uh, really everything in that culture. They, they ruled the land. Uh, everyone else was, were servants to them. And so to have um, a Caesar Augustus and later in Nero that was in charge and to have to be dealing with the Epicureans and all the leaders in that day was a daunting task in which a lot of people in Rome said, Paul, you're not up to. So here was really the thought. They thought, Paul, you're a great philosopher. You're a learned man. And so you have no problem sitting around with the Grecians um, and talking about philosophy. You don't have a problem going to Corinth or to Ephesus and to some of the uh, places where they were talking about Gnosticism and the mystics, but you can't handle the power of Rome. So they thought he's settled in perfectly in the, the days of the philosophers, the Stoics, etc. but you can't handle us. And that was the thought. And so when Paul writes, he goes, listen, I want you to be very clear about something that I can handle it, but it's not about that. It's, it's that I long to be with you, but I've been prevented in doing so. And so he makes it very clear about uh, really, as he enters into this message, what his heart is and where he would long to be. And so if we look at verse seven, he just greets them. And he says, to all of you that I love in Rome, to all of you that are in Rome, you're loved by God and you're called to be saints. He goes, every one of you, he goes, you're called to a certain calling. He establishes the book uh, early on in the first couple of verses that he is a bond servant, that he is a slave to God himself. And he says, and I know that that is true for you. But then he, uh, he, he gives them grace and peace, a provision. And he says this, from our, our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does here is he greets them as he makes one very important truth that would go against some of the people in that day, both Judaizers, but also Grecians. And that is, is that God and Jesus are one and the same. And so I think it's really easy in a culture to, to separate the idea of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes it very clear as he writes to Rome that to have God the Father is to have the Son. And to have the Son means that you have God the Father. That they are not distinct, they're not separate, uh, they are not modes of themselves. They are one. 
And so matter of fact, he takes on a similar sentiment as that of the apostle John. In John chapter five, this is what uh, John says in verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So John the apostle just simply says, listen, if you have the father, you have the son. If you have the son, you have the father. Obviously, if you have the Father and the Son, you also have the Spirit, which is what Jesus makes very clear in the Gospel of John, that as I go away, that we'll send a more suitable helper for you. So he's not advocating the Spirit is not at work here. What he is advocating for is that you cannot separate God the Father from the Son. You cannot have one without the other which was really Paul's biggest problem in terms of his ignorance in the faith. He, for the first handful of years of his life, even as he learned um, under Gamaliel, was he was separating Jesus from the Father. That was the challenge, is that Jews would say, well, we believe in Jehovah. We know that he's the God of Israel. We know he's the one who brought us out of the land of slavery from Egypt, but he is not the one who gave us the son. And so they discredited Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul makes it crystal clear. You cannot have God without his son, Jesus. And so he, he shares that in really his opening. And then in verse eight, he says this, first, meaning foremost, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, that word proclaimed in the Greek literally just means celebrated. He goes, I hear of your faith and it is being celebrated everywhere. So what he's saying is you are doing a great job in the church of Rome. As we established last week, the church in Rome does not have an apostolic influence. There's not an apostle tied to it. Uh, there's not anyone that uh, we know of in the scripture that was closely tied to that of Jesus, the Messiah. What we know of, the best we can tell, is that this group of people formulated in Rome must have happened in the days of Pentecost, and it must have been taken back to the epicenter of Rome and established, although we don't know any significant leaders. And so as Paul writes, he goes, you're doing a great job. Like that's pretty cool to have a church and you don't have a, a, a huge personality leading you. It's really cool to know that there's not an apostle that has taken charge. And he goes, that's a fruitful work. And it's being proclaimed in all the world. In essence, he goes, you guys don't have great visibility, but you have been made known and you are living for the Lord. And he goes, and it is worth celebrating. He goes on in verse nine and he says this, and for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. What he says, he goes, listen, I'm praying that I'll be able to get there. Uh, we'll see in a few few moments that it was, um, that, that he wasn't successful because the Lord has prevented him. But the reality he goes, I pray often and then he even says this in the verse uh, nine, he goes, as God is my witness. Now the question is, is why does he say that? Well, because of some of the things that might've been circulating in that day and time that he could handle the Grecians, but he couldn't handle the power of Rome. He goes, listen, I want you to realize that as God is my witness, I am declaring these things to you. And one of the things that he says, as God is my witness too, is that I pray for you when I have the opportunity, which I think is oftentimes different than many of us who would say we're friends. The reality is, is that if we're friends, then how often do we forget to pray for our friends? How many times do you tagline, hey, I'll be praying for you? Or how many times do you text somebody and you go, hey, I'm going to be praying for you? But what Paul is saying, he goes, as God is my witness. So he goes on oath before the God of heaven and earth. He goes, I pray for you earnestly. What does that look like? 
I mean, for, for him, it was probably more than just daily. Like, it is something that is always on my mind. And he goes, and I'm not just praying for you and the visibility that you have in one of the chief and leading places of the day, but he goes, I'm also praying that God would open the door because I would long to be with you. I would long to see you. And that is Paul's declaration. Now, I don't know about you, but if you would say, this person is really my friend, the question you need to ask yourself is, how often do I pray for my friends? How often do I pray for the people that I love? And, and maybe you just make you a little note in your journal, um, these are my friends and I should pray for them more often and then list their names and go to that every day and be praying for your friends. That's what Paul says. And the question is, is why? Why does he always pray for them? And the reason why is because he goes, I long to have something in common with you. And look at it, what he says in verse 11, for I long to see you. Because I pray for you, I think about you because of the faith that's been established in you, but I also long to see you. And the question is why? Why does he long to see this church in Rome whom he's heard about, but he's got a great ministry and influence already? Why does he long to go to them? Now, as he writes this letter to them, Paul's been in ministry for about 20 years. And as he writes this, he goes, hey, I want to come. And then the question is, is, okay, why? And this is what he says, that I might impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we might be, underline, mutually encouraged. That we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, this right here is an incredible text because it is what helps us understand friendship. He is writing to a group of people that he doesn't know, but he says, I long to see you and I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. Now, I want to answer the question, what does that mean, spiritual gift? The Greek word there is the word uh, charisma, which is a really widely accepted term for something that is a spiritual gift. Um, it doesn't give us the, uh, the idea that it is a distinct spiritual gift that he's referencing. I think depending on which commentary you read and what circle of friends you listen to in terms of pastors, uh, they might disagree on it. Uh, so there's a wide range of, of really commentaries about what this means. Some would say, well, Paul longed to impart the spiritual gifts, uh, the greater gifts that oftentimes he would refer to in, uh, in Corinth. Uh, along the idea of healing and prophecy and tongues. A lot of people would say that's what he means because there was no apostolic presence there. He was the one who longed to bring those greater gifts. Um, I think if you look closer at it, I don't think that's what he means. Now, here's the deal. He would clearly um, bring about, uh, even Paul, um, incredible gifts in his ministry. We know that many of the apostles had incredible gifts many of which were being used in that day for the purpose of God in others' lives. But I don't think that's what he means. What I think he means here is that I long to give you the idea of the gift of holy living. Paul, being a man who was set apart, I think what he would say in this text is, I desire for you to know how to live and imitate your faith in such a way that you could proclaim to others what he proclaims to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think that's what he means here. Now, the reason I think that he means that is because he makes a great argument, even a handful 
of chapters later around the greater gifts to the church of Corinth. And he makes the argument that, hey, there are great gifts and there are things that many of you long for. And then he gives some parameters around that. But even more than that, what's interesting is he goes, listen, what you should desire is not a greater infestation of the spirit in your life as much as you should desire faith, hope, and love, which love is the greatest of all these gifts. And I think what he's saying in this this way, in, in some ways, even being counterintuitive to some of the things that are going along the lines of the Gnostics and those that were mystics is just saying, listen, there is not a a greater degree of your faith that every single one of us would always long for. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't long for more of the work of God's spirit in our life. The idea of God moving in us in which I would long for in my own life. But what I want you to be careful to say is, and I don't think what Paul is saying here is that, hey, I am longing to come for you so that you get a greater ounce and magnitude of your faith that Rome doesn't possess and every other church can. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying, hey, you guys don't have what I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring the spice. I'm going to bring the fire. I don't think that's what he means. In essence, I don't think he's saying, I'm going to bring the great gifts that you can't have. What I do think he's saying is, I'm going to bring faith, hope, love, and I'm going to show you how to imitate Christ in every way. Holy living, set apart for the gospel of God. Suffering, hardship, persecution, preaching, and he's going to preach the way of Christ. I think that's what he means. Why? So that you and I would be mutually encouraged. Have you ever thought about why it is that you and I gather together on a weekend? I mean, honestly, can we just say that in our flesh, it could be Saturday night, we could be watching a ball game, it's about 1030 at night, and we go, you know, I I, I probably need to go tomorrow. But then there's this thing that kind of comes across your mind and in your flesh and in your heart. And I know you wouldn't necessarily admit to everybody, you could admit it to me because it's a safe place. But you go, I don't know that I want to go tomorrow morning. That never happened to y'all? No? Okay, it happened to me last night, so I was just confessing it. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know that I want to do this tomorrow, right? Why? Because I'm selfish in my core. Listen, I'm just telling you, you give me two weeks to myself disconnected from the body of Christ, and I'm prone to do something stupid. That's just who I am. I have to be mutually encouraged. Oftentimes people will say, well, I mean, I'm living in community. And listen, I I will just tell you this. If you're living in community, you don't have to convince me how you're living in community. Because if you're not in community, you'll long to be in it very quickly. It's not something you have to be twisted to get into if you understand the depths of community. And the reason why is because real community is going to not just be friends and whom you can confess some things to, but it's going to be the mutual encouragement from the Lord towards each other's faith to press on, both yours and mine. It's the idea that there is a spiritual strengthening that takes place. Namely, it's what we see in Proverbs 17, verse 17, which says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. What's that mean? It means that there are friends that stick closer than a brother. There are friends that are committed to you even when it's difficult. The reason that I'm prone to leave the God I love is because I can find myself in isolation quickly. I probably quote this verse three to five times a week to various friends. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. Guys, can I just tell you that if, if I was living my life for me, 
just me alone, can I, I, I could tell you that I wouldn't commit a whole lot to the local church probably. I'll just be honest with you. Like I, I could find myself not committing to the local church a whole lot. I'm not committing to you, not desiring to, to live with others, to be a friend, because in some ways that's what makes me most comfortable. Um, tomorrow night, we actually uh, have a group of guys that are commencing uh, in region. I get to be a part of that after a year. And you know what the Lord's taught me? There's two things the Lord's taught me over the last year. One is I desire comfort. If I didn't have to pastor, if I didn't have to have conversations that were really difficult, if I didn't have to tell you the truth and love, I would do that in a moment's notice because it's easy and it's comfortable for me. But here's the deal. I also realize that the reason I desire comfort and ease is because that makes you like me more. And if you like me more, I look like a really good idol to you. And here's what I had to confess to my group in about week seven of steps, which wasn't week seven at all. It was like week 47 is what it felt like. (laughs) Is that one of the reasons I desire comfort is because I desire your worship. I want you to like me. I want you to think highly of me. I want you to defend me in the public square and go, oh no, my pastor would never say that. Oh no, they would never do that. You mean you're just missing their heart. That's just the, that's just the truth. But if I don't have mutual encouragement to remind me, hey, it doesn't matter what they say and it doesn't matter what they, they did. Hey, and it doesn't matter that you made the mistake. You sought their forgiveness and you sought understanding and you sought to reconcile and they wouldn't give it. And so yes, they are saying some hurtful things, but it doesn't matter. If I didn't have brothers and sisters that stuck closer than a brother that gave mutual edification and encouragement, I'd be a mess. See, the reality is that the reason I live in community is not for myself, but it's for the good of others and the glory of God. And it happens to be a lot of good for myself. And the reason why is because people encourage me to imitate Christ daily. I just see that to be true in the scriptures is why I can't isolate myself and break out against all sound judgment. Because if, if it's what I want to do, I will do something foolish. And it is against all sound judgment. That's the key. People would go, that's not wise, Brandon. It's not wise to uh, binge on uh, fridge food and watch all the favorite TV series you want. Um, leave your family to, to themselves. Don't play with your kids. And it just, that's not what people would encourage me to do. People would encourage me to continue to die to my flesh, to wring out myself for the glory of God and the good of the gospel, to be tired morning and night. That's what people would encourage me to do. That's what Proverbs tells us that we should do. That's why we have friends that stick closer than a brother. And here's the deal. I'm not saying that you have, don't have friends. I'm asking, do you have friends that help you understand why you do what you do? Why did we gather this morning? Why are we here? Genuinely, why are you here? What is it that you desire? And here's what I desire. I desire to encourage you today, to implore you today to live for the glory of God and nothing else. I don't want to, I don't want to give you some idea that comfort and ease is what you should have. I don't see that in the gospel. I don't see that as we read our stories of faith throughout the, the scriptures. I see hardship. I see challenge. I see calamity. I see suffering. I don't see more prosperity? Do I believe God wants me to to be blessed? Possibly, but I also know how God got Paul to Rome. 
And so here's what I would tell you. Proverbs 27, 5 just says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It goes down to verse nine in Proverbs 27. And it says, oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. That's why I have friends. Verse 17, that famous line, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. We have it on t-shirts. Doesn't it sound glorious? Hey dude, do you mind if I just like take some metal to you real quick? <laughs> but here's the deal. When somebody picks up something and starts sharpening us, we're like, no, like heck no. You don't, and you don't have permission to do that. Who gave you the permission to do that? You'll only give permission to someone who gives you earnest counsel, who truly loves you. It has been the most painful lesson in the last 10 years that I have endured. True friends who would point me to the glorious grace of the gospel and have told me some of the most difficult things I've ever heard. Hard. Incredibly refining. That's what a friend does. That's why Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, 12 through 13, and reminds them of this. He goes, we exhort you. That means encourage and he goes, and we encourage you and we charge you to walk in a manner worthy of the God, of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this. Now, when you receive the word of God, what you have heard from us, he goes, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you as believers. Almost a similar exhortation to them. He says, hey, listen, I'm here to encourage you, to exhort you, to make sure that you walk in a manner worthy of God, which means it's not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your amenities, but it's for God's own kingdom and glory. And he goes, and that's why I thank God, or I pray for you constantly. He goes, that's why I continue to mention you, because you've received the word of God. And that's the question I have to you. Why did you come? Is it because you received the word of God and the command of God to be his people? Is it about being an ambassador for him? If it is about being an ambassador for him, then who's making you do it? Is it me? Is it some other leader that's imploring you, twisting your arm? Is that why? Paul says, listen, you accepted this. And I want you to see it in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 2. We'll put it for you back on the screen. He goes, you accepted it, not as, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Which is what I would put the challenge on you. Why is it that you and I are a part of this thing called the church? When's the last time that you discovered it for yourself, what God really requires of you from the word of God? Not from your leaders, not because you went to some class or some, some you know, encouragement flaming you along the way. Like, but just from the word of God. What is he calling you to do? That's why he says later on in that same book to the, the church of Thessalonica, he says, therefore, in chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you've been doing. In verse 14, he goes, and we even urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. So what he goes, he goes, listen, you're going to have some difficult conversations. That's what friends do. Friends, they, they tell the idle and the disruptive to get it together. He goes, they, they, they remind the disheartened, the ones who are weak in faith. He goes, they tell them where to put their faith. And he goes, in the weak, the ones, the ones that are having a hard time getting off the ground. It just seems like they live in a stage of immaturity for a long time. They're not oaks of righteousness. They're saplings. How long have they been a sapling? Well, 30 years. He goes, be patient with them all, which is really the great 
graciousness of the gospel is knowing that we're all on different paths, but if we are on different paths, it doesn't change our calling. And our calling is to be God's man and woman, his boy and his girl, to be set apart, consecrated is a great word in the scriptures that we would see. And if that is what we are, then what is encouraging you to that? Is it me or is it the word of God? I pray it's the word of God. That's why the Hebrew writer in chapter 3, verse 13 says, but encourage one another daily as long as, uh, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you might be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's a verse for me right there. That's my verse. That's why I need to be exhorted and encouraged. That's why Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good uh, works, not neglecting to meet together, some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He goes, that's why we're here. It's to encourage, to exhort, to spur up. That word spur means to provoke. When I think about provoke, I think about a cattle prod. That's what I think about. Um, I was, ca- I was, I was ca- prodding cattle yesterday. And listen, to provoke a cattle means they get with it. They get moving. That's not what we think of. It's like, oh, let's spur each other on, which I don't know about you, but it's like almost like this, oh, hey, it'll be okay. One of these days you'll get it together. But spurring each other on, exhorting, means that we get to moving. That's the idea. That was why Paul longed to see the church in Rome. He goes, because I want to help you continue to get moving. I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. I just haven't gotten there yet. But when I do, you should know what to expect. I'll be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And that's why he goes on and he says this in verse 13 of Romans 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I mean, he goes, I've had divine prohibition. He has not opened the door. If he had, I would have been there. But in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So he goes, my, my gospel-centered mission is to make the Lord known wherever I go. He tells the church in Galatia in chapter 3, he goes, and I'll make the gospel known to both slave and free, male and female. It doesn't matter. We can all be free in Christ. And that was Paul's mission to go to the nations. And so he says this in verse 15. And so I am eager to preach the gospel. Uh, He goes, I am eager. Uh, In the Greek, prothemos. I am ready is what it means. It literally means I am ready to moment's notice. So what he told his buddy Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he goes, you should be ready in season and out of season to reprove, exhort, correct. It's the idea that you are ready. And he goes, and I'm ready to do that to you also who are in Rome. And when I think about ready, I thought about what, is, what does that mean for me? And, and I'm an acronym guy. Sometimes I just kind of think through like, what does that even look like? And here's what I would tell you. When Paul was ready, and when he commissions any of us to be ready, I think there's five things. One, you would see he was resolute. He was resolute. Um, that means that he had his eyes fixed on what God had for him. That's his only desire. Look, I'm going to just get, read one, one of two verses to you. Uh, he says this in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, be to, is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He goes, I would rather like exit the planet now and go and be with God. That's better by far. But if God leaves me here, then he goes, you need to know it's only for you. I am going to be a friend that sticks close by. 
uh, in Acts, uh, he's being convinced by a group of people not to go to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 21, this is what he says. They go, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be, it's going to be too scary and they're going to probably kill you and they're going to hurt you. Very same things that oftentimes we would encourage a 17 or 18 year old who are really growing in their faith. A parent would say, I would love for you to go be on missions for the Lord, but I don't want you to go where you're wanting to go. I don't want you to go across seas. I don't want you to go to Afghanistan or to the Sudan. I don't want you to go to a place like that. It's going to be dangerous. And here's the deal. Well-meaning people encourage kids all the time not to go to the nations because we're so afraid. But this is what Paul's response to them. Don't go to Jerusalem. And he said this, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart for I am not ready to be, uh, I am, ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since uh, he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the, uh, the will of the Lord be done. Here's what he goes. He goes, you're not going to persuade me any differently. How are you going to call me to be an ambassador? You're going to tell me that the Lord is making an appeal to me, but then you're going to say you can only make an appeal in certain places. He was resolute. Let me explain it this way. If you were to find Paul today, you would not find him in a Bible Belt church in Wills Point, Texas. You would find him in a place where he was likely to be drugged out of the city and beaten. You would find him in a place where there was no foundation, there was nothing firm and established. You would not find him in a place of comfort. You would find him in a place where he longed that people would be encouraged, exhorted, and it might cost him everything. That was Paul. Which means what God has called me to right now seems like a very light and momentary thing. And which also implores me to think about, is there more? Paul was also an evangelist. As an evangelist, he wasn't just resolute, but it meant that he knew what his chief aim was. That's why he writes later in this same letter in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He goes, my goal is to make God famous throughout the earth. And he goes, and I want you to realize I'm going to go anywhere the gospel hasn't gone, which the number one place in all the country right now would be Afghanistan. I would think that's where he's praying to go. That's where Paul would want to be, around Muslim brothers and sisters and whom many of us as Americans would have little grace or, or, or even any mercy on. And Paul somehow, even as a Jew, would go to the Greek and the most barbaric places. And he would say, and I'm going to give them the generosity and the kindness and the loving, steadfast, immovable faithfulness of the great God in which I've come to know. Friends, why do we as a church exist for any other reason than that alone? To make the gospel known. Why in the world would we do anything other than Share the gospel wherever it is we go. All the while, this strong, sturdy, dependable type of guy you would think might be rugged was incredibly affectionate, which is the A in ready. He was affectionate. Look what he, how he greeted the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves because you had become very dear to us. Uh, look how he writes to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter one, verse eight, it's in his greeting. He goes, for God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
gentle, humble, caring. Philippians 4, later on in the same book, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm, thus the Lord, my beloved. All the while, encouraging them, exhorting them, um, making sure they're moving, but in all that time, he goes, we're going to be committed to the gospel, we're going to be committed to the nations, and we're going to do it all in love. Which I pray, if you ever hear anything about our church, I pray that you would hear that we are the most committed people in the state of Texas to the gospel. I pray you would hear that we are the most committed people in reconciling to one another of anywhere in the country. I pray that you would also know that though we require a lot of those who we call this place home, I pray that you would also know that our leaders are gentle and they're humble in heart. I pray that you would know that we're not satisfied with the status quo. How can we be and read what we're reading even today? How can you be resolute and evangelist without love, but even more than that, without a solid direction and purpose? See, Paul was incredibly devoted. Think about his devotion. Listen how he explains it later in this book. He goes, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And then he asks this question in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or, or who has been his counselor? Have you ever thought about that? Who counsels the Lord? Is that you? Is that me? Can we have the mind of the God? Can we understand the heart of God? And he goes on and he says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Are you satisfied with standing for the Lord now and going, you know what? I think I repaid you for the incredible grace and mercy you lavished on me through salvation. You there yet? I'm like, Lord, here I am. Send me. I haven't done enough. God, I feel like there's so much more that I need to do, which means as I pray that very prayer, I don't know how much longer I'll be your pastor. But the reality is this, until God calls me to do something, until he opens the door, similar to that of him opening a door to Rome, my prayer every day is, Lord, here I am. I am your faithful servant. My life is poured out as a drink offering for you. God, would you rid me of my comfort? Would you, would you rid me of some of the things that I might be wrestling in, in terms of making it about me? And the reason he says that, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says, my life is devoted to you and everything is for you because it's all from you. And that means your life, friends. And so how does someone reconcile the reason that we're gathered today? Are we gathered for our own comfort and our own joy and our own satisfaction only to merely leave out of here and go, you know what? It's really good. It's pretty challenging. I don't know that I agree with everything. Can we agree on this one thing, that your life is not your own if you read this New Testament? And if that is the case, then you've got to reconcile where it is the Lord has you and what it is that you're going to be called to. Because not only was he devoted, but Paul was also incredibly yielded to Christ. Look what he says in Acts chapter 20. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. The apostle Paul I do not think I have any value. I am not precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. He writes something similar to the, the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9. He encouraged them to run the race with perseverance. 
Something similar, he writes to his buddy Timothy, the son of the faith, and he goes, hey, listen, I have fought the good fight. I have stayed the course. I have finished my race. Is that going to be true of you? If not, why not? Friends, I pray that as we gather together, that we would be more committed to the things of God than we are now. I pray that we would be ready that we would be resolute, that we would be evangelistic, that we would be affectionate, devoted, and yielded to Christ in all things. Here's the deal. Paul would get to Rome, what it was in the, Rome, the way that he had prayed for. But listen, can I tell you that when you're praying and you're praying through what God desires, through his word, that God will come, come through. And it may not be exactly what you want, but listen to C.H. Spurgeon. We'll close with this. Look at this quote. He says, I do not suppose that Paul guessed that he would be sent there, meaning Rome, at the government's expense. But he was. The Roman Empire had to find a ship for him and a fit escort for him too. And he entered the city as an ambassador in bonds, meant chains. He was arrested. And when our hearts are set on a thing and we pray for it, God may grant us the blessing. But it may be in a way that we never looked for. You shall go to Rome, Paul, but you shall go in chains. That to me is the center of the gospel. My life is yours, Lord, and I don't get to direct my steps. And so I think if we pray, Psalm 105, 119, that your word is a lamp to my feet, a light into my path, then it means you get to determine the path and you have to light it. And I pray that's where we would set our eyes resolute to him. That we would be encouraged as Colossians 3 to set our eyes on things above or the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, that we would think about the author and perfecter of our faith. Friends, may you be of good cheer and may you be encouraged this fantastic day in July. But may you be also reminded that your life is not your own if you're a follower of Jesus. And so we love you. And it's a a pleasure to not only pastor and shepherd here, but I pray that we call you nothing, nothing less than all that God's called us to. And listen, if you want to be settled for anything less than that, then the question you got to ask yourself is, what am I doing? Something to wrestle with. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the proclamation of your truth. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us, God, to do everything we everything we do, whether word and deed for the glory of God. Lord, I pray that even as Paul wrote that to the church of Colossae in chapter three, verse 17, Lord, I pray we would contemplate that very thing. How, how do we work heartily for the Lord and for ourselves? How, how do we keep our motives pure if, if it's all about us? Lord, I pray that everything we do would be about you. I pray that we would make you known, that we would be your servants that we would not be ashamed to to preach the power of God for salvation to everyone. And I pray that we'd be eager to do so because we are ready. Lord, help us to be more like the Apostle Paul. Help us most of all to be more like your son, Jesus. We need your help. And we ask that you would help us. And it is by the help of our God that we do anything including live and move and have our being today. We can't even sustain our own breath without your help. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that 
And we say thank you for the gift of mercy that we've received and many will receive. In Jesus' name, amen.